God wants your best. And he's admonishing us to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Now, the scripture says that where your heart is, your treasure will be. The two are linked together. And the heart is really the center of personality. It drives your intellect, your emotion, and your will. And he is clear that if we are truly living for eternal treasure, then your treasures in your heart will be in the same place, going in the same direction. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a special series of messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy, and today is part two of his sermon, Overcoming Worry and Fear. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter six, looking at three principles of how to overcome worry and fear by questioning our treasure, vision, and service. Please join us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, as we continue. Do you care enough to give God your very best and not your leftovers? Listen, friends, God doesn't want your leftovers, and God doesn't deserve your leftovers. God wants your best, and he's admonishing us to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Now, the scripture says that where your heart is, your treasure will be. The two are linked together. And the heart is really the center of personality. It drives your intellect, your emotion, and your will. And he is clear that if we are truly living for eternal treasure, then your treasures in your heart will be in the same place, going in the same direction. All right, that's principle number one to overcoming worry and fear. Uh, It is a question of our treasure. Principle number two there in your outline. It is the question of our vision, the question of our vision. So the Lord now moves from two treasures to two bodily conditions here in verses 22 and 23. And the illustration that he gives comes from the realm of ophthalmology. Ophthalmos is the Greek word for eye, and so we get our word ophthalmology, two Greek words bled together, the study of the eye. Look now at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, knowing that almost every bodily activity depends on your ability to see, he uses an illustration from the physical realm to teach us about the spiritual realm. You need to be able to see, to run, to jump, to drive a car, to cut the grass, to cross the road, to use a computer, to paint the house, because the eye illumines the body through your hands and your feet. Now, certainly there are people with poor sight and people who are blind, who are able to adapt the other senses, but the principle nonetheless holds true. His illustration here is a factual description that he uses metaphorically to teach a spiritual lesson. Jesus is speaking clearly, not just of physical sight, but also of spiritual sight. And there are two words in these two verses that you might want to Underline. If you're using the New American Standard, the first word is clear in verse 22, and the second word is bad in verse 23. The Lord is contrasting here the clear eye 
with the clouded eye, the single eye, literally, with the sinful eye. Now, the Greek word that is translated clear is the Greek word alplus, and it literally means single, and so the King James renders it that way. The thought is is that someone with a clear eye has a single-minded devotion or perspective. You see, there is a single, just like there's a single treasure that matters, eternal treasure, so there is a single eye that matters. And as we'll see in a moment, there is a single master that matters. Now, if you're using the ESV, it renders it the healthy eye and the bad eye. The HCSB renders it the good eye and the bad eye. The Net Bible renders it the healthy eye and the diseased eye. Now, the word bad is actually a play on words in the original. It's the Greek word pornos. We get our word pornography. It's often translated evil in Scripture. And so it's a word that has a moral dimension to it. And so the King James renders the second adjective as evil. And the New American Standard, trying to retain the play on words uh, from the original, uses the word bad. Now, many times in Scripture, the eye is equivalent to the heart. And so to set the heart or to fix the eye are equivalent expressions. There are many examples. Let me give you just one. For instance, in Psalm 119, the psalmist writes in verse 10, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. And then in a few verses later, he will pray, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And so Jesus goes from having our heart in the right place to having our eye as being something that is sound and healthy. Now, don't miss the point. Jesus is saying, just as our eye affects the whole body, even so our ambition, that is where we fix the heart of our eyes, will affect our entire life. Just as seeing gives light to the body, even so godly ambitions will throw light on everything that you do. It's a question of vision. If we have physical vision, then we can see what we are and where we are going. Even so, if we have clear spiritual vision, a good eye, spiritual eyes, then we'll have wisdom and insight to live life well. Now, unfortunately, many people think they have wisdom when in reality they do not. For instance, you go off to the university, you earn a doctoral degree, and, um, but you don't know Christ as your Savior. Now, in the eyes of the world, you may be considered even a genius, but a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. You may have a triple PhD, as one of my professors did in college, but he was lost as can be. In God's eyes, he was a total ignoramus. Now, you may think you are wise, but in God's eyes, you may not be. So, Jesus says, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? See, he's not talking just about intelligence. He's talking about wisdom. He's not just talking about learning. He's talking about the ability to live life well. And if your physical eye is clouded, if it is out of focus, then you will have double vision. And again, James says a double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. But the sad reality about a double-minded person is sometimes he doesn't know he's double-minded. Now, it's one thing. It's bad enough when someone says, well, I don't know what the answers to life problems are, um, but I just know I don't have the answer. 
Okay, that's, that's one thing. I don't know what the answers are. At least you're willing to admit that. But what is really sad is when a person thinks he has the answers, when in reality he does not. And many times people will pontificate their opinion all over the place. Remember, everything you believe is based on something. You read it in a book. Someone told you or taught it to you. You made it up, though there is really nothing new under the sun. But just because you believe something doesn't make it true. You can believe with all your heart, sincerely believe the wrong thing. And so in the book of Judges, God records for us the lowest moral ebb in Israel's history. Twice over in the book of Judges, right in the middle and right at the end, God says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, please note what the verse says and what it doesn't say. Everyone did not do what was wrong in his own eyes, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They thought they were doing right, but they were doing evil. And that's exactly where America is, and that's exactly where our world is. I'm going to preach a sermon, is God unhappy with the world? And the answer very simply is yes. God is unhappy with our world. You say, I thought he's a God of love. He is. And it's his love that grieves him. God was grieved, the Bible says, that he had made man in Noah's day. And the coming of the Son of Man will be both like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And in America, we have a redefined immorality. A little baby can be born, and the governors of New York and Virginia says if the doctor and the mother wants to kill that little squirming baby on the operation table, then kill it! We've invented transgenderism. There is no such thing. We've invented gay marriage. There is no such thing. We are taking the things that God calls an abomination, and we are calling them good. And we think it is right, and it is the people who hold to what is good that are considered evil and wrong. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in Israel's day, as in our day more and more, it's morality not by the scriptures and the revelation of God and the law that he wrote into your heart that you may have smushed and repressed and calloused, your conscience is morality by the majority rather than by morality from the scriptures. And so in the day of Judges at high noon, it was midnight. It was as dark as could be. And so God allowed Israel to experience various expressions of judgment, and I can't help but think that God is doing the same. We'll talk about different kinds of judgments in the week to come. But Jesus can also say, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness, which forces us to ask a personal question. He is saying this to the believer. How clear is my vision this morning? Or do I have spiritual cataracts? Are my eyes out of focus, my spiritual eyes, the eyes of my heart? Paul prays for the eyes of their hearts as he writes to the church at Ephesus. If my eye is clear, then I will focus on that which is eternal because clear eyesight always governs my priorities. But if my eyes are deformed and diseased, I will only focus on the material things of this life, on the temporal, 
on this life only. And unfortunately, there are Christians who sometimes get blinded by their houses and their cars and their boats and their careers and their bank accounts and their fame and the praise of men. And when you put earthly values in front of God's values, you'll not be able to see God's way clearly. But don't miss the promise for those who have clear vision. He continues, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. In the illustration of treasure, Jesus again is speaking of future dividends. But now in the illustration of the eye, he's speaking of current dividends that result in benefits right now in this life that will ultimately influence your treasure in the next. When I thought about some of the current dividends, and there are many, I came up with a whole list. It's a sermon in itself, but let me just enumerate three. First of all, when the eye is clear, you'll have contentment. There'll be contentment in your heart. First Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. I'll go on to say, if we have food and clothing, with this we ought to be content. I doubt any of us in America are going to starve to death through this. What's the worst that could happen to you? The worst! You could die. And if you're saved, it becomes the best. Because absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And some of you listening to me this morning, you are not content. You've not learned contentment. And you can't buy contentment. You can't spend enough money to make your heart content because as soon as you spend money on that, there's something else you need to spend it on. And so your vision is clouded. A second dividend of clear vision is that God will meet all of our needs. He'll meet all of our needs. Paul says to the church at Philippi, and my God will supply all of your needs, not your wants, but your needs, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Some of you have needs that are not being met because your priorities have been out of whack. You've done your, even your finances the world's way. And I love guys like Dave Ramsey, but he uses very little scripture. He doesn't really demonstrate from the word of God the truth because he has as much a secular audience that he's trying to reach as Christians. You need to have your mind rooted in scripture. And there are many good Christian financial ministries. And I have a course on managing your money God's way. It's about 150 pages. It's not for the weak and weary. It's at searchthescriptures.org. A third dividend of clear vision is you'll have a happy family life, a happy family life. Listen to what God said through the psalmist in Psalm 128. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. You know, I know men who can buy Wall Street, but they can't buy peace in their homes and they can't buy character in their children. Two different kinds of visions that results in two different kinds of results. You know, sometimes I just get so busy and on such a fast track, I just need to slow down and have kind of a special session with the Lord. And I feel like, well, maybe my vision here is a little bit clouded and and I want to be single-minded. And I give everything that is important in life to me back to God. My wife, my children, my grandchildren, my health, my ministry, my church, everything that is important to me. And I submit it to the Lordship of Christ. You know how I can tell everything is right? 
because I'm full of light. You say, what does that mean? I can't exactly describe it. But listen, when you have given every area under the lordship of Christ as you ought if you've met him, there's just a freedom, there's just a clarity that God brings. Now that brings me to the third principle on overcoming worry and fear and having a godly perspective. Principle number one is the question of our treasure. Principle number two is the question of our vision. Principle number three on your note-taking outline is the question of our service. Now please notice, not only are there two treasures and two bodily conditions, Jesus now speaks of two masters. Let's read verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Now, please understand, Jesus did not say you shouldn't serve two masters, or he didn't say it's better to have one master than two. He taught you cannot, you cannot, you cannot serve two masters. That is, it is an impossibility to serve both God and wealth. Now, the word that Jesus uses for master is the Greek word kurios. It means master or lord or a slave owner. A person might be able in our day to work for two different employers at the same time, but no slave can serve two masters because a slave is owned by a single person. Single ownership and full-time service is the nature of a single master, the nature of slavery. Now, I've known Christians who have shown the love of money to run their lives. And I can promise you on the authority of this book, the Bible, that anyone who has a divided allegiance between God and wealth will give his devotion to wealth rather than God. To try to serve both God and wealth is idolatry, and God will have no idols in our hearts. Christ doesn't want just a place in your life. He doesn't want prominence in your life. He wants preeminence in your life. He wants every aspect of your life. Have you come to the place as a believer? And unfortunately, in the reformed culture of our day, we have front-loaded the gospel in an unfair and unhealthy way, and we've clouded it with works by the way we've defined repentance. R.C. Sproul had a twisted view on repentance, in my opinion. And I think he knows better now that he's in heaven. And I'm glad he had the gospel. But sometimes we make repentance almost a work. The word means to change your mind. And in the one book in the New Testament that is written to save people, the word repent doesn't once appear. But it is impossible to believe on the Lord Jesus without repenting. But unfortunately, in the reform movement of our day, we have made certain aspects of the believer's life. If they're not true, it means you're not saved. Where there's a progressive dimension to the Lordship of Christ. Christ is principally directing his people. He's not talking about earning salvation, but laying up treasure in heaven. He's talking about people who might not have that perspective. Why? Because there's some unyielded areas in their life. And Christ doesn't want that kind of attitude. You can't say, well, Lord, you can have a little bit of my love. You can have a little bit of my time. You can have a little bit of my obedience. No, in God's economy, you cannot serve two masters again. No one 
can serve two masters. For he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And so what we find here is some very helpful counsel on how to be successful in life. Do I have real treasure that I can never, ever lose? Do I have real wisdom such that my heart is full of light? Do I have genuine service because like a slave, I am totally yielded to the Lordship of Christ? Okay, that brings us to the fourth principle for overcoming worry and fear, and is the question of our ambition. The question of our ambition. Now, it is unfortunate that this paragraph of Scripture is often isolated from the paragraph that went before. But Jesus distinctly connects the two. There's a cause-effect relationship between avarice and anxiety. And the Lord Jesus is admonishing us to receive real treasure, treasure that is in heaven. Then he admonishes us to receive real wisdom, the wisdom that comes to those who have clear vision. Then he admonishes us to true service, the kind of service that comes to someone who's a slave to his master. And now he is going to connect those three thoughts with the advice that follows. Dia in the Greek, therefore in some of your Bibles, or you could render it for this reason. In other words, he is making a cause-effect relationship. Think about it. A person who's filled with covetousness is going to be worried. These people were fighting in Costco. One guy who took a bottle and slammed it over someone's head. He was worried. He was anxious. Someone might get something that he wanted so bad. And if you see your security in the here and now and the things you possess and the health that you enjoy and the job that you have then out of necessity, you're going to be forced to worry. So Jesus is saying, don't fix your attention on the horizontal because you can't serve two masters. Don't be enslaved to an earthly perspective because you're going to become a worrier. And if you do this, you will have a distracted life and you will be filled with what ifs. What if I get the virus? What if I get sick? What if my children get sick? What if I lose my job? What if the economy goes into a depression? What if, what if, what if? I would define worry as fear in search of a cause because it is really assuming responsibility that's beyond your control. Now, I realize that some people enjoy worrying because there's pleasure in sin for a season, Moses will write. There's a certain gratification that comes from every sin. And some people who worry feel like they're accomplishing something. And so to help us to deal with this problem of worry, Jesus begins by giving us two principal reasons as why we worry. He is underscoring the why that will help us to under, overcome the problem of worry. The first reason is found here in verse 25. And it centers on the fact that some people have a distorted view of life, of the lesser things of life. Follow what he says, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. And in that culture, if you've ever been to Israel, it is a dry place. Sometimes just having a glass of water in a filled cistern was critical. Nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now in verse 25, he starts with a command. Do not be worried. And the Greek verb is significant. And if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, 
It gives you the essence of the meaning. You could translate it, stop being worried. That's what he's saying. Now, if you look at verse 31, he uses a different Greek tense, and it could be translated, don't ever worry. Two different kinds of verbs in the original. So the application is clear. If you are already a worry wart, worry wart, then stop it. Don't let it get a grip on you. And if you're not a worry wart, then don't ever start being one. That's the thought bringing the two verbs together. And this is a very significant statement that he makes because God will never command you to do something that he doesn't give you the power to perform. When he tells you, don't worry, it's not like he's saying, jump over that house. That's an impossibility. God will always give you the grace. His grace is sufficient if we will humble ourselves and be recipients of that sanctifying grace. Look how verse 25 begins. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried. Now, the King James interestingly renders this. Therefore, I say to you, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life. And by the way, that was a superb way of expressing the Greek three or 400 years ago, but today it might be a little confusing. And so the NAS and the New King James simply brings it out, do not be worried. Now, please know, Jesus is not forbidding thought is the way to deal with worry. He's not saying, well, just try not to think about it. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. He is commanding us to think. Now, we're asked first in verse 26 to look. Then in verse 28, he commands us to observe. And the Greek word that is used there means to take a very careful, close look at something. And the parallel passage in Luke's gospel and the NASB translates it with a different word because it's a different Greek word. It says consider, because again, it's a word of deep scrutiny to perceive something and to take careful note of it. In other words, Jesus is saying, slow down, look, observe, consider, take note. And to help us to use our minds, he directs us first to the birds of the air and then to the lilies of the field which God has created. So this is not a prohibition against thought. For that matter, it's not a a prohibition against forethought, that is preparing for the future. This is a prohibition against anxious thought, about worrying. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried. Why? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And so it is unnecessary to worry about something that God, your Father, is already aware of. As Pastor Carl said, it is only when we have given every area of our life over to God can we then really experience the true freedom and clarity that only God can provide. Please join us tomorrow for our third segment of Overcoming Worry and Fear. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program OWF-020. If you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brokey personally, you can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. 
We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.